All right, so I'm going to also read our text for today. So if you turn in Genesis to chapter 37, that's the first book of the Bible, the very first book. And you're looking for the big number 37. And I'm going to read the little number one all the way down to the little number 11. And it says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilphah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are we indeed, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stacy. And Stacy, this is no joke up here. Uh, there's a 95% chance something's falling down. Uh, Chrissy, if I knock over your djembe, I apologize. Um, well, Jay Will stole my thunder. Uh, I wanted to welcome the Jones family back, but he beat me to the punch. Uh, but I will say this, no one's happier than me that you're back, brother. Uh, I'm also grateful that the Cabreras are back uh, with us this morning worshiping. So we're glad to have this wonderful family with us. <clears throat> well, I have a pop quiz for you. A pop quiz, yes. I fell down a well, was traumatized by bats, then was further traumatized when my parents lost their lives to a brutal mugging. Who am I? <laughs> At least Christopher Nolan's version, right? I'm Batman. Uh, origin stories are, uh, we love them, not just because they make for endless prequels, uh, but because we know how significant they are for these characters that we enjoy following. They are important indicators of their character, what drives and motivates them, and in a way, many ways indicates their destiny. But of course, origin stories aren't just for comic book heroes. 
We all have a family of origin, whether that was our biological parents, adoptive parents, maybe we grew up with our grandparents or an aunt or our siblings took care of us. We all have a family of origin, and for that reason, we all have an origin story. We all have a founding myth, if you like, a myth that narrates our family's history and explains its, the meaning of our family, the purpose and role of our family, and again, indicates maybe something about the destiny of our family. These stories and the experiences they narrate profoundly shape us. As Christian psychologist Diane Legberg writes, I suspect most of us have some awareness of our family histories. There are some exceptions, and the blankness of that space carries its own wounds. Some of us have family stories that instill dignity and pride. Others carry family stories like a burden heavy with shame and sadness. It is likely that most of us have some of both. We've all been shaped by what has been passed down through the generations. And that's true not just of individual families, but collections of families. There is a phenomenon that's called the survivor syndrome, that the children and grandchildren of the survivors of the Holocaust carry trauma from their parents and grandparents. It's a phenomenon that's not unique, of course, to the survivors of the Holocaust, but to all peoples who survived massive trauma. It's called generational trauma. It's a phenomenon that's hard for us to understand, though it's very real in America. For our African-American brothers and sisters who endured 250 years of brutal slavery, and then 100 plus years of Jim Crow era oppression, you can better believe that there is generational trauma. That's hard for us to understand because we hold to this American myth of the rugged individual who emerges naked and new onto paths of his own making. But the fact is we all step onto the stage of history, not only with our own histories in tow, but a whole slew of histories attached to us both empowering us, these histories, and wounding us. I'll never forget when my firstborn son, Luke, was born and I got to hold him and I looked at this young life and I was amazed at the newness of this life and, and I was grateful for the new beginning it represented. But I was also terrified. And I thought... How will I protect this boy from my sins and from the sins of my fathers? You know, you ever wonder why Genesis is so brutally honest as we've been walking through the narrative of the patriarchs and matriarchs? I mean, it's, they honor them, but they are brutally honest. I mean, the, the tale we considered last week regarding Dinah and Jacob's passivity as her father and her brother's brutal violence. Why tell this? Why air the family dirty laundry like this? What's the point? Is this just like an episode of, of, of days of our lives meant to just entertain us? Why show us 
such ugliness in the family tree. I don't know what you do with the the hard stories in your family. Some of us have stories that are really difficult to, to, to name, let alone to tell anyone. Trauma darkens many branches of our family tree. Maybe it's alcoholism that runs through the whole trunk. Maybe it's abuse that repeats every generation. Maybe it's, it's a kind of absence that just keeps getting relived and our trees feel more like shadows than substance. But we need to name these things the way Genesis does. And the reason why Genesis is posing this question is because it wishes to answer the same question you're asking, the same question I asked holding my newborn son. Who will save this family from me? Who will save this family from ourselves? This is the line of Jacob. This is the chosen son. This is the line of promise. The very family of God on earth. And its brokenness is profound. Not not just how will God save the nations with this family. How will God save this family is the question. And the text raises that question in order to answer it for us. Who can redeem our families from ourselves, us from our families? How will we be saved? Well, would you pray with me as we look into the text's addressing of this important question? Father, we thank you that you do speak into our brokenness, into our silence. Where our families have been silent, Lord, you are not silent, but you speak a tender word of grace. You name what needs to be named but not in order to harm or to shame us, Lord, but to draw us out of our shame and to heal us. And I pray this morning you would draw us out of ourselves into your presence, which is filled with love, with your kindness, your patience, and your tenderness. Minister to us, we pray this morning, for your name's sake. Amen. Well, We begin here in the story with some dreams, and those dreams are very important in the Genesis narrative. If you've been reading Genesis up to this point, especially beginning with Abraham's story, you will have been attuned to the significance of these dreams. It seems Abraham had a dream, and God revealed the promise of the land to him in Genesis 15 while he slept. Certainly Abimelech, a foreign king, had a dream from God when he abducted Sarah, and God encouraged him to return her. It was more of a nightmare than a dream, but God spoke. Jacob has dreams. He has dreams at Bethel of a ladder reaching to heaven. And again, when he's in the land of his forefathers in Padamaram, he has a dream to return to the promised land. Laban, his oppressive uncle, has a dream. Basically, leave Jacob be. And all these come from the Lord. So by this point in the narrative, when we read of Joseph's dream, we are attuned to the fact that this is a revelation from God. That God is speaking. And what a dream. He has this 
This double dream, which in Joseph's story is important. As Joseph would go on to tell Pharaoh, when Pharaoh had two similar but different dreams, your dream is one. And God has doubled it to to show this. It's certainly going to happen. It's fixed. And it's going to happen soon. So likewise, we realize that what's being said here about Joseph is that what his dream has demonstrated is certainly going to happen, and that right quickly in his lifetime. And what is the dream? The dream is that among all of his chosen brethren, he is the uniquely chosen one. Particularly, that he will be exalted above all of his brothers, indeed, even his mother and father. And we see that this is the sort of thing God has been doing throughout Genesis. He has been a very selective God. He's been electing individuals, choosing some and not others. He chose Abraham and no one else, not even Lot. And as the circumstances unfold, it's evident that he chose Abraham, not Lot. And then, despite uh, uh, Abraham's prayers, you can see on the screen, Please, just take my firstborn son and bless him. Make him my heir. God says, no, Ishmael will not be the heir of promise. I have another chosen son, Isaac. But I will bless Ishmael. And I will and have blessed Lot. I chose you, Abraham, not the other nations, but I chose you that you might bless all the other nations. Same with Jacob and Esau fighting in their mother's womb. Rebecca, in such distress, cries out to God for an oracle, and he answers her. And here was the oracle. If you remember, there are two nations in your womb, and they're fighting it out. One will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger, upending the custom of culture. God chooses, even within the same line, He selects. But God's elective purpose is for the sake, as we said, of blessing. Just as all Jacob's sons are chosen, they're imaged here in the second dream as stars. And his mom is the sun and the moon. These cosmic images from Genesis 1. These symbols in the sky. God says, or reveals through that, nevertheless, Joseph will be the elevated one among all those chosen family members. But why was he chosen? He's chosen in order to bless and ultimately, as we'll see, to save his family, both literally with grain and food during a a famine and in every sense of the word as he reunites them. This is God's solution to broken family systems. He introduces someone who will act different into the system. He chooses them in order to bless the whole family. God shows the nation of Israel. They were divinely blessed, but there is one chosen son within her ranks who would bless that broken family. And through her, the broken families of the earth. He's known as the Messiah. I would also note that God's choosing of these uh, chosen sons was not only a call to be a blessing to the family 
and through the family, the families of all the earth, but to also suffer. To be elect is a call to suffer. I reminded what the risen Christ said to a rather hesitant Ananias in Acts about Saul the persecutor turned apostle. He said this, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Joseph, too, will suffer greatly at the hands of his brothers. And in the sufferings that their crimes unleash in his life. Well, let's begin. God has, cho- has his chosen ones, uh, but these elect are for the blessing of many. As we're going to see, Jacob here in, repeats his father's sins by playing favorites. God elects, man plays favorites, whom he blesses to the exclusion of others. And now Jacob sadly in, repeats his own dad's favoritism. How painful it must have been for Jacob to grow up knowing, yeah, he was mama's boy, but dad preferred his older brother Esau. And now, tragically, we see Jacob repeating the same sins of his dad. He favors Joseph, the son of his old age, kind of like Abraham held Isaac so dear as the son of his old age. He was the son of his beloved wife, the firstborn of Rachel. how sad to repeat it and as if that weren't bad enough he gives him a robe so everyone knows he's favored our text says a robe of many colors the Hebrew we we don't really know what the Hebrew means actually that's that's based on other Greek translations Syriac translate Latin translation The Hebrew is more obscure. The phrase only occurs one other time in the Hebrew Bible, and that's regarding Tamar, whom we mentioned last week. Tamar, the daughter of David, she was given a robe of long sleeves, it's rendered, such that the virgin daughters of the king wore. In other words, whatever this robe looked like, sorry, Clay Aiken. There's Clay Aiken wearing Jacob's Technicolor dream coat. Uh, Maybe Joseph's coat looked like that. Uh, Probably not. But it was long-sleeved. Probably is is, is the right rendering. It was a long-sleeved robe, which was not a robe you worked in. You had to roll up your sleeves to get stuff done. So this was a robe that royalty would have worn and signified, in so many words, Jacob saying, Joseph is my prince. So there he is walking around in royal robes. You can see him. And Joseph's not very smart here, I will say this. One, you see him tattletailing on his brothers, right? He gives a bad report about his brothers, so he's a little tattletale. And he kind of seems to live into this favored status. He seems to embrace it. Joseph is not perfect. Why do I say that? Well, if you have a dream in which your brothers bow down to you, and your brothers are already not on speaking terms with you, like... Did you hear what it said? They couldn't even say a nice word. They can't even say good morning to him. They hate him so much. It's like my friend said when we were were discussing this uh, text uh, earlier this week. He said, it's like, yo, 
Joseph, read the room, bro. Like you walk in and go, hey, guys, I had a dream that I'm going to be better than all of you. <laughs> what? You don't like me? So there's this total cluelessness. Like he's oblivious to the dynamic. And he does it twice. This, this doesn't end well for him. Now, this kind of favoritism is condemned by Scripture, not just by our story, but it's interesting that the law of Israel goes out of its way to explicitly condemn this kind of favoritism. It's like it's saying, we know this is in our family tree. It's not good. We name it and call it out and say we don't want to repeat it. So look on the screen from Deuteronomy. Moses wrote this. If a man has two wives, one loved, the other unloved, sound familiar? And both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved wife, then on the day he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as though they're the firstborn in preference. He must acknowledge the firstborn. He must not play favorites. And this is an important, I think, instruction for us. When we see those broken patterns in our own families, do we name it? Do we call evil evil? Go, that's not good. Yeah, that happened. We justified it. We even made jokes about it growing up. Did your family do that? It's like you, you like spun the family legends in this kind of dark humor. Because it's kind of like if I don't laugh about it, I have to cry. We just name it for what it is. This is evil. And we're not going to continue to behave this way as a family. Something very instructive, I think, about that. Look, the reality is God does have his chosen ones, and the most chosen and uniquely loved son of all is his only begotten son, Jesus, who also happened to be subject to the greatest suffering in human history for our salvation. But this beloved son divested his royal robes. He took off his royal robe, and he took on our tattered flesh. So that whoever believes in him now is included in the Son and now wears his royal robe. And when we sit at this table with Christ at the head, though he is the uniquely beloved Son, because of our faith in him, we experience the same love at this table, the very same love the Father has for the only begotten for us. There are no favorites in God's family. And that's so healing if you grew up in a household where there was a favorite. Maybe it was you, and that put undue guilt and pressure on you. Maybe it was someone else. And you were reminded, maybe often, how you were not the favorite. The Father does not treat you that way. When He sees you, He says, oh, My beloved, I'm so glad you're here. This awful favoritism results in fratricidal rage. And this is family repeating history. The brothers are irate. We see the story of Cain and Abel playing out again, don't we? Of Esau's murderous rage against Jacob playing out again. The family story repeats itself. 
And I want to begin here with Jacob's passivity and his neglect. Look at verses uh, 12 and following. Now his, Joseph's brothers, went to pasture, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. Does that strike any of you as odd? Hey, your brothers are out by themselves in the wilderness. The brothers who just killed an entire village and who have such rage at you that they can't even speak to you. I'm going to go send you by yourself to them. I'm going to send you into the lion's den. That's cool. Contrast that with how God engaged Cain in his rage. When Cain saw that his sacrifice was not honored the way Abel's was, it says Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord approached the angry son and said, Why are you angry and your face has fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. As a good father, he approaches his angry son, names his heart what's going on in it, engages him and encourages him and warns him. What Cain does with it is on Cain. But what a contrast to Jacob's silence and neglect. Well, the text goes on to say there in verses 16 and following, or 15, a man found him wandering in the fields of Shechem, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he says. Well, tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan, further away, interesting, on the trade route to Egypt. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we, we will say a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. And they do this. Look at verse 24. They took him. Now Reuben steps in. The oldest brother, the son of Leah, steps in and says, guys, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit, which will ne inevitably kill him, but that we wouldn't have actually done it ourselves. And they're like, okay, that sounds good. So they decide to throw him in the pit. Reuben, we're told, has a motive. He wanted to go back later, rescue Joseph, and bring him back to dad undoubtedly to win favor back after he had lost favor last week. So he's trying to be the good son, right? So they do, they do, they follow that, that recommendation. They throw him into the pit. And they're going to leave him for dead. And look at how callous this is. Verse 24. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. That's why Joseph didn't drown. Then they sat down to eat. Can you imagine? You throw your brother to what is certainly going to be his, his grave and go, you guys want a burger? Like, I'm, not, I'm kind of hungry. You hungry? Just the, the ruthlessness, callousness of his brothers. He's going to starve to death in there. Speaking of food, anyone got some? 
And then Judah has this interesting proposal, the other brother of Leah, Leah's son. He says, you know what? What profit is there in his death? We can make a little money. After all, he is our flesh and blood. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. And so they do. Ishmaelites, descendants of Ishmael, who had intermarried evidently with the Midianites, passed by on a trade route, going to Egypt with spices and other things to trade. And like, hey, how, how much for this guy? We got a guy we can sell to you. And he sells him for 20 shekels, which is about the going rate of adult male slave at that time. Now comes the terrible irony of after their, their, um, their little investment, their little uh, escapade here. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit, Reuben apparently wasn't there when they sold Joseph into slavery. And he saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone I, and I, where, where shall I go? And they just sort of ignored him. This shows you that Reuben, the firstborn, is an ineffectual family leader. But it goes on. They just sort of ignored him and then they take Joseph's robe that they'd stripped of him and they slaughter a goat and dip the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, hey, we found this. Do you know where this came from? Does this look familiar? And let dad draw his own conclusions. Now, this sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? There's another deception in which a brother's cloak was used and goat, a goat was slaughtered in order to deceive dad. It was Jacob. He wore goat skin to be like Esau and wore his brother's clothes to deceive his old man, and it worked. And now, Jacob's going to get tricked by his own sons with the same scheme. History repeats itself. And it's tragic. Jacob absolutely collapses into a complex grief. Just utter despair. When he's comforted by his children, he says, no, I will not be comforted. I will go to my grave in grief. He's so shattered by the loss of his favorite. Note the horrible hypocrisy here. The very sons who essentially kill him are there comforting dad. Oh, dad, it's okay. It's just, isn't it icky? <laughs> it's just disgusting. Who will save this broken family? What are the sins of the fathers and mothers of your story? What are the stories that we've passed down, either family legends we repeat with pride or those we maybe re-narrate a little bit or maybe those we never speak of? What sins have resurfaced in your family growing up and how are they showing up now? How have they shaped and wounded you? How have they wounded and shaped others in your family? And how have you seen history repeat itself maybe in your own life? For good and for ill. Genesis' answer to this dysfunctional family, as I said, is one member of the family who will just choose to behave different. And that's Joseph. As we would anticipate having read these narratives closely, Joseph will 
despite his oppression, arise the way Abraham was blessed and Jacob was blessed when he was oppressed by his uncle Laban. How Isaac flourished, though he was taken advantage of by the Canaanites. God blesses his chosen ones, and so will be, we expect, for Joseph. And just as Abraham solved family conflict with Lot successfully, and Jacob and Esau reconciled, so we rightly anticipate Joseph will reconcile the bitter divide in his own family. But we don't quite fully anticipate the level of grace that's going to come through Joseph. Edwin Friedman was a rabbi and family therapist. And working with families, he used to think, what I need to get to is the leader of the family. Typically, that's dad. If I can just get to dad, then I can fix the family dynamic. That's what he thought. That was the theory. But here's what he learned in, in, in his actual experience. All I need is one person. It can be a kid who will be, in his terms, a non-anxious presence in the family. That's all I need. And I'll change the family dynamic. All God needed was one son who would, in the, in the place of vengeance, give mercy. Where the family just keeps rev taking vengeance back and forth, right? Esau, the 12 sons, Cain. Joseph gives mercy. Joseph gives grace. Instead of reacting, Joseph prays reflects and serves God. Joseph changes the family dynamic. And the same is true for us. We need one family member who will pull themselves from that, that pull we feel in our family dramas and refuse to play their roles anymore. Refuse to, to be the gear in this demented machine of their dysfunctional family. Just one member, just one person. The New Testament draws all kinds of connections from Joseph to Jesus. You'll notice while his brothers are conspiring and even arguing what to do with him and his body, Joseph is silent. Like the lamb before his shears is silent. You know, when they said, come, let us kill him, that Greek expression in the Greek translation occurs only one other time. It's in the parable of the tenants, where the tenants who have beaten every servant of the master who came to collect profits on the vineyard he planted, finally the master sends his son and says, surely they'll respect my son. And when the son marches up, the tenants say, come, let us kill him. When, ja when Jacob reflected on his son's, uh, what shall we call it, absurd dream of being the star above which all the stars and planets fall down in honor, though his brothers scoffed and hated him all the more, remember what Jacob said about Jacob? Jacob didn't like it. He rebuked his son, but then he said, it says, his father kept the matter in mind. That, too, is the exact same language in Greek that the gospel writer Luke says of Jesus' mother. And it says his mother kept the matter in mind regarding her child's cosmic destiny. 
Jacob endure, or Joseph endures a kind of death and resurrection, thrown down to the pit, left for dead, but found raised to great power to bless his own family who rejected him. In the book of Acts, Stephen draws parallels between Joseph and Jesus and says, just as Joseph was rejected by his brothers Israel, but would end up being their savior, Jesus was rejected by Israel, but would be her savior. It's not from Joseph's line that God elects the chosen son. We find out later in Genesis 49, not from Joseph, but from Judah. Judah will come the blessed son. But Joseph is a type. He's a picture, an expectation of the chosen son who enters into our broken family dynamic and changes it from the inside out. Jesus of Nazareth, rejected by his brothers, scapegoated by his brothers, restores the family. And so Jesus, rejected by his brothers, Israel, scapegoated by men in injustice and strangely by God in a mysterious judgment, shows us mercy, restores the human family by changing our family's story, renewing its character, and rewriting its destiny. This table is set as a reminder to us of the son's sufferings as the chosen one and of his victory over our brokenness. This is a place for hope. Because we're welcome at this table, we are changed. Our families are changed. Our world is changed. It just takes one son, and he came. This table is a family meal, so it is set for those who have committed to Christ. But it doesn't mean this isn't a place for conversion. If you're looking for Christ, the chosen son, to save you and your family, that I encourage you to pray. When we, the ele- when, in a moment, when we are released to come and receive the elements, some of the elders will be standing in the back, and I encourage you to just seek them out while others are standing and go and receive prayer. But for all of us, I invite you now for a time of reflection that we're going to pray And we're going to bring our hearts into God's presence as we come to this table. The table of Christ's drama. This is an important part of our family's story. It's the greatest moment of our shame where we rejected our older brother. And it's the moment of our greatest joy where he blessed us in the place of our curse. And so let me encourage you now to bow your head. And as I, as I lead us through, give us time and give yourself time to ask these questions and then turn your answers into prayers. So with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, reflect on what the Spirit brings to mind. First, sitting in our seats, sitting ourselves in our own bodies, Let me ask, what is our body telling us? Do we have any pain or discomfort? Is there tiredness, 
fatigue? If so, just acknowledge that, name that, and then bring that to Christ who's here as a non-anxious presence with us, kind and patient, as we sang with love in his eyes. And ask him for healing and to give you rest. Now, as you reflect, let me ask, what are you feeling? What are your feelings telling you? Our feelings are not always the truth, but they are always significant in what they are pointing out in us, in our own souls. What are the present fears that you feel? What are anxieties? that are maybe gripping our stomachs or our hearts or making our, our own minds spin? What are some frustrations we're feeling? And what longings, unmet longings, do those frustrations reveal? What do we desire? Name these things. And then take them to Christ to carry for us these burdens because... As Peter writes, he cares for us. What does memory and conscience tell you? As you reflect on the last couple of days, where does your conscience feel maybe stung? Where is there maybe shame or a sense of guilt? Where did you feel most like yourself? Where did you feel most whole? And where did you feel most disconnected and fragmented? What do you see? As you scan the last few days, where do you smile with gratitude and joy? Thank God for His kindness in that. Where maybe were you sinned against? Where might you have been sinned, where you might have sinned yourself? And without judging or correcting or spinning it, just name that and take that to Christ, presenting your hurts and how maybe you've hurt others. Confess your sins to Him. He is very slow to anger, and he's very quick to forgive. And as you confess your sins to him now, confess some of these sources of shame. Maybe you're not even clear what's guilt, what's true, what's false. Know that you're covered by his love and grace and receive this promise. If we, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.